you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to go to the New Testament book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be in Romans this morning, uh, Romans 13. Uh, if you're a guest this morning, I want to say welcome in Christ's name. Uh, all summer long, uh, we have been going through this sermon series called Good Question. And the big idea behind this sermon series is that as so many of you are reading through your Bibles from cover to cover uh, this past year, by the way, how many of you are reading through your Bibles cover to cover, trying to read through your Bibles is, is probably a better way of saying it. Yeah, lots of you. Hey, guess good news. Uh, we're over halfway. Did you guys realize that? We are over halfway uh, in reading through our, our Bibles this year and... You might have also noticed uh, that the Psalms begin again. Did you guys notice that yet? If you're caught up in your readings, uh, you're gonna, uh, you have two options here. One is uh, you don't have to read the Psalms because you've read through the Psalms already once, right? So you can cut back on your reading, or uh, you could read the Psalms twice. So you could read Genesis through Revelation and uh, read the Psalms twice. So just a little tidbit there for you. Options. Options are always good as you're reading through the Bible. Anyways, as you guys have been reading through the Bibles, uh, you've had some questions. You've had questions about the Bible. You've had questions about God. You've had questions about the church. Uh, you've had questions about faith in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and you've had just all these questions, and you've sent me many questions. And these are good questions, uh, and I've had to really wrestle and struggle with many of your questions. And so all summer long, we're going through uh, many of your questions uh, as we look at all these different issues of faith. And so this morning, uh, as Jeff said, since it's uh, Independence Weekend, it's July 4th, it's a time for us to remember our freedom, uh, but also to remember our responsibility and our relationship uh, with the government. And so that's the topic this morning is, how do I live as a citizen uh, of the kingdom of God, but also live as a resident uh, of, uh, in this great nation of ours? How do I live as a, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, and yet have this responsibility uh, uh, to uh, honor the government and, and the uh, governmental authorities? So um, I don't know if your Christian beliefs align perfectly with all that's going on in Washington, D.C. or in Springfield, but every now and then my Christian faith rubs up against, bumps up against, and I find that there is some tension between uh, this relationship, between my identity as a follower of Jesus Christ and my uh, identity as a citizen of this great land. Anybody else find that tension, experience that tension? Yeah. All right, that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, the government. This is kind of a picker-upper sermon uh, for the weekend. Everybody excited for, to talk about the government uh, of the United States of America? Well, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, as we gather again in your sanctuary this beautiful morning. As the sun is shining, the breeze is blowing. God, just this opportunity to be outdoors in your creation Lord, as we uh, prepare to read and reflect on your word this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to invite you uh, for just a few moments uh, to go on a journey with your imaginations. And we're going to go back in time just a little bit. And the year is 1760. 
And each one of you is a, 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 an Englishman or an Englishwoman. And you're living in the city of London as your ancestors have for many years, for generations. And you're part of the family business and things have been really, really good. Now, you don't love everything about the policies of uh, King George and the crown of England. But it hasn't been too bad. You kind of put up with it. It kind of works. But one day your dad comes to you and says, hey, there's a new land. There's some colonies across the Atlantic. I think it's time for you to go on an adventure, to live in a new place, to explore a new land, and to consider what it might be to have your own business in this brand new land of opportunity. So you plan out your trip, you book a ticket, and you sail across the Atlantic Ocean. You land in the thir- one of the 13 colonies here in this, in this land, and you start a business, and things are going really well. But pretty soon you start to get some rumblings about there's a rebellion, there's some anxiety, there's some stress about, from the colonists, the people who are living in that land. But there's, you're kind of ignore it because you're, you're, you're loyal to the crown. You're a good subject of England, King George. As time goes on, things start to get more and more tense. And pretty soon you hear a rumbling People picking up arms, going to battle. So you got a decision to make. What are you going to do? You've been invited now to be a minute man, to fight against King and England. And now you're starting to get it. Because as a business person, while you are loyal to the crown, The taxes are unbearable. The oppression from across the Atlantic just seems like so much. So as a Christian, what do you do? How do you live your life? Do you pick up arms and join the rebellion? Or do you hang on and wait and support the Redcoats? Because you know they're also picking up arms and getting ready. What do you do? Fast forward 100 years, new scenario, you are an owner of a plantation in southern Alabama, and you've got about 1,200 acres of land, and you've got all sorts of crops, you've got cotton, you've got corn, and you've got peaches, and you've got free labor. People who are taking care of your crops, who are farming for you. Of course, they are slaves. Now, as a Christian, you kind of got an uneasy relationship with slaves, right? But after all, slavery is legal. And you got a pretty good business going. Things are going pretty well for you. And year after year, uh, you're able to raise your family and you're able to make some pretty good money. Well, in November of 1860, a Yankee, a guy from Illinois, is elected president of the United States. And there's rumblings that he wants to get rid of slavery. And of course, for you, that gets rid of, destroys your business, right? A few months later, several southern states secede from the Union. 
And by April of 1861, there is a full-on war going on between the states. What do you do? You dump your plantation, set your slaves free, travel north and fight for the Union? Or do you stay in the South, dig in your heels, and fight for your freedom, your property, and all that you know in your life? What do you do? These, of course, are real life scenarios that American men and women have had to wrestle with. What do you do when your faith, when your beliefs are not in alignment with what's going on in the government? And even this morning, I can about imagine there might be some of you here this morning who are not in agreement with all that's going on in Springfield, all that's going on in Washington, D.C., Some of you might be thinking to yourselves, you know, I really don't like this administration. I'm really struggling. Others of you are thinking to yourselves, I really didn't like the last administration. I'm really struggling. I think all of us at some level, we struggle, we wrestle with what this idea of what does it mean to be a Christ follower, a citizen of the kingdom of God, and yet a resident of this great nation. Well, these questions uh, of of how do we live as as faithful Jesus followers in relationship to the government, they're not new. And I want to take you on another journey. This one is about 2,000 years old. And about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was a new emperor on the throne in Rome. It was a guy by the name of Nero. And it was, we think about uh, an emperor or a dictator or a tyrant today. Maybe our minds think of uh, someone like Kim Jong-un. Or maybe we think about someone like uh, Saddam Hussein or, or any number of the dictators uh, that many of us have lived through. But what you need to know is that uh, compared to the dictators today, Nero was much worse. Nero was paranoid, and so he had his own mother executed. Nero was the guy who set Rome on fire and said the Christians did it. Now all you Roman citizens, take care of the Christians. And he stood back and watched. And when Nero was bored, what he would do is uh, he would sew animal skins on the bodies of Christians, and then he would set the dogs loose. And he would watch these dogs tear up the Christians just to see what would happen. Nero was also the guy who, and he wanted to intimidate people, his subjects. He would douse their clothes in wax. And he would set their bodies, their, their living bodies around Rome. And at nighttime, it was getting dark. He would set them on fire and watch them light up the sky. Hey, whatever you think about the current administration in D.C. or Springfield or the previous one, Nero was a bad bad dude. He was the emperor when the Apostle Paul was writing the book to the Romans, the church in Rome. 
So that's the context I wanted to set up for you this morning. That's the guy who's on the throne. That's the guy who's in power. So let's look at Romans 13, beginning with verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that existed have been established by God. Now, when Paul writes the book of the Romans, he begins his book by talking about how we ought to be in relationship with God, how we can have a right relationship with God. And then Paul moves on to talk about how we can be in relationship with one another. And by Romans 13, he's talking about how we can be in relationship, right relationship with the governing authorities. And three times as he begins Romans 13, he uses this word authority. And as I say that word authority this morning, we can probably all think about positions of authority and relationships that we have with those who are in authority, or maybe you're in authority. For myself, I think about uh, roles of authority. I am under authority of the Church Council of Faith Lutheran Church. They are my bosses. They are my accountability. I am under their authority. I'm also under authority of, of a fellowship called Lutheran Congregations uh, for Mission in Christ. And I am under the authority of these pastors and these leaders who serve all over this country, about 25 other pastors here in, in the state of Illinois. I'm also under the authority of my parents. Now, I'm a, a grown adult, but I respect, I honor my parents. And every now and then I go to my parents and I ask for their advice on a number of things because I view them as in a position of authority. Now, I also serve in authority, and one of the authorities uh, that I serve in is that uh, I get to serve in authority uh, over the life of the congregation, over the, the flock, over the, uh, the people of Faith Lutheran Church. And that's a privilege and an honor, responsibility for me. I also serve in authority over my kids. Now, my kids are not children. They're grown up. They're young adults, and so my role as a father is one who coaches, one who walks alongside. Every now and then, about every 16 years, they have just a little question of advice, and they roll their eyes after I give my advice. But I like to think that I'm in authority over my kids, a little bit anyways. And I know some of you who are here this morning, you are in positions of authority. Some of you are coaches some of you are under authority. You're players on the team. Some of you are employers. You are in authority. Some of you are employees. You're under authority. Some of you are teachers. You are in authority. Some of you are students. You're under authority. And we can kind of go through the list like I just did with you all, and we can kind of think of some of the people who are over us in authority and those people who are under us in authority or those who uh, maybe said better, uh, we serve uh, in, as in positions of authority. And this whole idea of authority, uh, as, as Americans especially, is that we like to be in authority. We don't like to be under authority. We like to tell other people what to do. We don't like people telling us what to do. This is what Paul is talking about, this idea of authority. 
And I want to remind you this morning that a definition of sin is rebellion against authority. Those of you who are reading through the Bibles, Genesis through Revelation, I mean, isn't that something as we're going through the Old Testament? We see the Israelites, God's people. They just continue to rebel against the authority of God over and over and over. And I don't know how your reading is going, and I've read through the Bible several times, but I just keep hoping, I keep wondering, when are these Israelites going to stop rebelling against the authority of God? But they don't. No matter, no matter how much God forgives them, no matter how much God welcomes them back, and says, I love you, I forgive you, let's start again. The Israelites are like, oh, that's awesome. And pretty soon before you know it, they're rebelling against God's authority again. And we think to ourselves, these are like the most rebellious people that have ever lived. But they're not. They're actually just you and me. When we read the Old Testament, we ought to read it like a mirror. You and I are rebellious against the authority of God. This is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 says, All have sinned, all have fallen short. All of us are in rebellion against God. So Paul's talking about authority and how all authority has been established by God. So how do we uh, live uh, under this authority, this governmental authority? It says, there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And Paul reminds us that even though you and I, all of us, have governmental authority over us, God is still yet above and the theological term for this, of course, is that God is sovereign. God is still in power. God is still in control, regardless of who is in governmental positions. And Paul invites us to live obediently under the authority of the governing authorities who are serving over us today. There are several examples of this uh, throughout the Old Testament of faithful men and women who served under evil dictators, kings, and pharaohs. First guy I want to lift up this morning to you is, is Joseph. Many of you know the Old Testament story of Joseph. Joseph was a guy who just did what did the right thing. And he followed after God. He followed uh, what he was supposed to do. And so he rose through the ranks. And pretty soon... There was Joseph, second in the nation of Egypt, alongside the evil Pharaoh. He was a faithful servant, even in the midst of this evil kingdom of Egypt. Another example uh, in the Old Testament is a guy by the name of uh, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah served under a really evil king as well. He had respect for the king. He had honor for the king. He was the, the, the king's uh, cupbearer, which meant that he was one step away from dying every single day whenever he ate a meal. He made sure that the food wasn't poisoned, the drink was not poisoned. So here is a guy who was so faithful, Nehemiah. He went to this evil, corrupt king 
and said, hey, can I go back to my land, to my nation, and help rebuild things? And those of you who know the story of Nehemiah know that he was a faithful man working in an evil and corrupt system. Last guy, maybe one of the most obvious people, is Daniel. Daniel was a guy who stand upstanding and upright. He was very faithful. And no matter how much evil was going on around him, he continued to practice and do things that honored God. See, it is possible for us to live as faithful followers of Jesus Christ and also be subject to, uh, subject to the authorities above us and serve faithfully in our communities and in our world. Verse 2, Paul writes, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. For those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Then do as right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason." They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So what Paul is doing here is he's clarifying the role of government, the role of those who serve in authority over us. He uses language like they use a sword. And we think about this language. Well, yeah, this is what governments do is they use power. They use weapons. They use things to help keep people in line. Now, I don't care if you live in a democracy or an autocracy, if you live in a dictatorship or if you live in a free nation. This is what all governments do. They use power. They use the weapons at their disposal. Because if there, were no if there were no weapons, or if there was no sword, there would be chaos and anarchy. I mean, that is the only result of no government. Chaos and anarchy. And this is what all governments strive to do. So the function of the government is to restrain our worst instincts the function and the role of the government is to restrain vice, those things evil inside of us. Now, for most of human history, this is what governments have done and continue to do. And for most of human history, the government, as people thought about the government, were dictators, tyrants, autocrats, kings, pharaohs. I mean, you fill in the blank. This is what governments did, is they kept the people in order, in line, so that chaos and anarchy didn't break out. And this is why, on July 4th, 1776, when the founders of our nation signed the Declaration of Independence, it was so radical They were thinking about something brand new. They were thinking about something that no one had ever 
tried before successfully. And they began to craft a document. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union. And they started to dream about a new kind of government. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now this government would have to wait because the Revolutionary War had just begun. And it would take nearly nine years of faithful men and women to go to battle against the tyrants across the Atlantic, to fight the fights, to live and sacrifice. But after those nearly nine years, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, started coming together. Seven articles, ten amendments called the Bill of Rights, 17 amendments that would be added on, this remarkable document to dream, to consider about what it means to have a new form of government, a new system of authority. And maybe you know that there were about 50-ish people who crafted and worked on the Constitution. It didn't happen overnight. There were lots of committee meetings. If you think you've sat in church committee meetings before, the Constitution was a doozy. It was weeks and months of hashing and rehashing. How are we going to do this? And in the end, they looked at the U.S. Constitution and they thought to themselves, this is pretty good, but it's not perfect. It's problematic. And one of the guys who was in the midst of uh, all the, the drama of writing the U.S. Constitution, the second president of the United States, John Adams, he looked at the U.S. Constitution and said, this is a pretty good document. But it's got problems. It's got holes. And this is what John Adams wrote after re uh, reflecting on the Constitution as they put it all together. Quote, Our Constitution was written only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Let me read that again. These are powerful words. Our Constitution was written only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any others. What John Adams recognized, and I think what all of us recognize, is that our Constitution, our government is limited. It can only do so much. It can only do what governments do, restrain people from evil. It can only work with the lowest common denominator. We are going to force these laws on people so that the behavior across the board is going to restrain them from their most evil desires. This is the purpose of the government, is to restrain us from our vices, from our immorality, from those things inside of us that want to, to do things that we ought not to be doing. What John Adams is talking about is the low bar for how we live as a society. 
And he recognized it. And he said, if we want to be a truly great nation, if we want to be a nation that truly honors God, then we must be a people who are moral and religious. People who have faith in God. And this is where virtue comes in. See, the purpose, to be very clear this morning, the purpose of government is not virtue. Those things that we aspire to. Nobody looks to the government and says, that is so amazing. That is so awesome. That is so wonderful. The government is a picture of love and care and concern. That's not what the government does. And frankly, that's not what the government can do. That's the role of the Christ follower. That's the role of the church. The role of the government is to uh, restrain all those thoughts, all those actions in our lives. And the role of the church and the Christian is to aspire to a higher way of living. You hear these distinctions? And I think oftentimes many people today confuse the role of the government. I think the government is supposed to do something that the government cannot do. Let me give you a few examples to kind of unpack this a little bit. The government, of course, makes laws, traffic laws. It says you can only drive this fast out on the road. But the government cannot legislate how nice you are when you're out on the road. Have you noticed that? It's road rage. The government can't legislate that. They can try they can't legislate it. Or think about tax laws. The government can legislate tax laws. And there are even some tax laws that are meant to allow us to be generous. But the government cannot legislate for any of us to be generous. It's impossible. Those are virtues. The government cannot legislate for those of us to be nice to one another. Think about your own homeowners association. You've got rules at your homeowners association, right? But how many of you know that the rules of your homeowners association don't make you a nice person? The rules of the homeowners association actually reinforce the point I'm trying to make, that that junk your neighbors have in their front yard shouldn't be there. And so we've got to legislate it. We've got to tell people, it's not that beautiful. Get rid of it. But the rules of the Homeowners Association cannot make you a good neighbor. They cannot make you love your neighbors, care for your neighbors, help your neighbors. Two different roles and responsibilities and so as Jesus followers, we ought not to be looking to the government to do things that only we as Christians, as Christ followers, as the church can be about. Paul says, hey, obey the government rulers. And Jesus says, love your neighbors as yourself. Honor those. Go the extra mile. Care for the widows and the orphans. Those things cannot 
be legislated. Verse 5. Paul continues. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, here the law, the sword, but as a matter of conscience, Paul's saying, because it's the right thing to do. Verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities of God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. If, you re if revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Folks, I looked this up in the Greek this week. Any way you cut it, we're supposed to pay our taxes. And so, you know, there's always the guy running around going, yeah, I don't think we really need to pay our taxes. He's in jail, okay? Paul says, pay your taxes. Did Jesus' parents pay their taxes? Every year at Christmas time, we read in Luke 2 that there was a census to be taken, and Mary and Joseph were to travel to Bethlehem to pay their taxes. That's why they went. You know that's why they went. Because they had to dish out some money to the government. Did Jesus pay his taxes? Absolutely. He was in the temple one day. He said, hey, render to Caesar what is Caesar. Pay your taxes and render to the Lord's what is the Lord's. Jesus paid his taxes. And I know none of us like to pay taxes. Because like the ancients, we feel like, or even the, 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 during the American Revolution, we feel like we're paying out taxes all the time, and they feel oppressive, and, and they feel like they're too much, and we feel like we don't get the services back. We pay all these taxes out, but yet we look around and we look at our roads. We pay taxes out, and we're like, why can the schools not be better funded? We pay these taxes out and we ask ourselves, why are the police not supported financially? We pay these taxes out and we ask ourselves, why are the most vulnerable in our community not receiving the services that we think they deserve? I mean, we all got a list, right? I mean, when I was 16, I got my first paycheck. I'm looking at it going, who's FICA? And why is he taking money out of my paycheck, right? Taxes, man, from the moment you get your first paycheck. I mean, we think it's wonderful all the things the government could do until you start getting a paycheck and you're like, what in the world? How are they spending our money? I don't know if that's part of the sermon or not, but Paul said we got to pay our taxes. I just need to get that off my chest. It's frustrating. Paul says, pay your taxes. Submit to the government authorities and submit to God. So what do we do? I want to bring this to a close here. When those things are not in alignment, when there's tension, when there is stress between being a, a faithful servant, the kingdom of God, and a responsible citizen in our great nation, what do we do? And again, I want to go back to the Old Testament because I think there's lots of examples of people who wrestled with this and they practiced civil disobedience. One of the examples I think about in the Old Testament uh, of um, um, God's people practicing civil disobedience was when the Pharaoh saw that there was a problem in the nation, there were too many Israelites. 
So the Pharaoh went to the Hebrew midwives and said, kill all the boys. Too many babies, right? Pharaoh was practicing infanticide. Let's get rid of all those babies. He said to the midwives, when those babies are about ready to be born, kill them. And there were a couple midwives, Shipra and Pua. They said, we're not doing it. We're not killing the babies because we value life. So they didn't do it. And so all these babies, the Israelite nation, continue to be born and to continue to grow up. Now, one of the things I love about this story is that it says that it was the Pharaoh, the government official who made this decree. And he's never named by name. Just some guy in some power and some authority. No name. But the people who practiced civil disobedience, the people who said, I am not following the government, my allegiance is to God, they are named Shipra and Pua. And here we are a couple thousand years later, and we know their names. They are the real heroes because they practiced civil disobedience. Another guy who practiced civil disobedience. Remember I talked about Daniel a little while ago? And while he was subject to the and worked within the governmental systems, there was another time where the government came to Daniel uh, and they came to the, all the people and said, hey, no more praying to God. From now on, you only pray to the king, the one in charge. Daniel said, I can't do that. I got to pray to my God. So Daniel went upstairs, opened up the curtains, and he started praying to God. People saw Daniel praying to God, practicing civil disobedience. Daniel's praying to God. Daniel got arrested and thrown in a lion's den. And we know how that story turns out. Daniel practiced civil disobedience. Then I think about Jesus' own parents. Remember when Jesus was born, Herod got news that a new king was coming to town. So Herod said, let's kill all the baby boys. And Mary and Joseph said, yeah, not our kid. And they fled. They left. They went away to Egypt. Like, we're not doing that. We're not allowing you to kill our baby boy. So they left. They practiced civil disobedience. You know, the early Christians practiced civil disobedience as well. You read about stories in the book of Acts time and time again. The early Christians were told to proclaim there is no king, there is no Lord but Caesar. And the early Christians said, yeah, we can't say that because we, our allegiance is to God. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And so what happened to the early Christians is they were arrested. They were beaten. They were tortured. They were thrown in prison. And they just kept saying over and over and over, we worship Jesus. Sorry, we got to keep preaching Jesus. And many of them lost their lives. They practiced civil disobedience. Now the guy who wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul, the very man who said, hey, Obey the governing authorities. The Apostle Paul also practiced civil disobedience. 
Do you know that the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time in jail because he couldn't stop talking about Jesus? The authorities, the governing authorities would come to him and say, stop talking about Jesus or we're going to put you in jail. And Paul was like, I got to talk about Jesus. So Paul spent an incredible amount of time in jail. He took a lot of beatings. He took a lot of whippings. And Paul wrote many letters in the New Testament from jail. See how this works, folks? Civil disobedience is an option, but there are going to be consequences for it. And we always have to weigh as Christ followers, are we willing to bear and even be open to the possibility that God might just use our civil disobedience to his glory to to raise the church and to glorify our Father in heaven. Paul wore an orange jumpsuit. Paul had a number. He knew what it was like to suffer persecution. And so when Paul talks about respecting and honoring governing authorities, I think he's got a platform to speak from. You know, on this July 4th Sunday, I think about us gathered here today, this morning. They don't do this in China. I think about us gathered here today, they don't do this in Russia. I think about us worshiping God, gathering together as God's people this morning. They don't do this in Saudi Arabia, Iran, most of the Middle East. I think about us worshiping Jesus this morning openly and freely and not worried about anyone who's going to come here and arrest us and tell us to knock it off. This does not happen in many, many nations around the world. We're free. We're free in Christ, and we live in a nation where we have the privilege and honor to celebrate, to gather together. It's in our Constitution. But I also want to remind you, governments come and governments go. Those who are in authority over us, they're not always going to be over, in authority over us. But as Christ followers, we believe that the Word of God stands forever. His authority is never-ending. And that's good news. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this uh, difficult topic of what it means to wrestle with those in authority over us. And on the one hand, God, we want to be good and faithful servants to the kingdom of God, to your kingdom the authority above every authority. But God, we got to live on the ground. we got to live in a world where there are those in authority over us who are making decisions and doing things that are against our Christian beliefs. So God, help us to live in that tension. Help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord to be reminded that you are above all authority in heaven and on earth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.